I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Kristen Godsey on her new book, Everyday Utopia. Kristen Godsey is a feminist ethnographer and the author of Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism. She is a professor of Russian and East European studies at the University of Pennsylvania and recipient of the John Simon Guggenheim Fellowship for her work in anthropology and cultural studies. Her articles and essays have appeared in many publications, including the New York Times and the Washington Post. And today we're going to be talking about Kristen's latest book, which is Everyday Utopia, in praise of radical alternatives to the traditional family home. Kristen, welcome back to Little Atoms. Yes, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here. Um, So we talked about the previous book, Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism, a couple of years ago. And I want to talk first of all about how this book is in some ways inspired by the reception of that book. Yeah. So I think, you know, one of the things that happened when that book was published, it was written in a very specific moment of Trump's America, where I felt like there was an urgency to really reach out to young Americans to sort of get them to participate in the electoral process in particular, so that Trump would not be reelected. But it was a reflection on the real value of going back and looking at certain kinds of historical experiments. In that book, I looked at 20th century state socialism in Eastern Europe. And one of the constant, I don't know, uh, criticisms or bits of feedback that I got when I spoke to people about that book, and that book did things that I didn't expect it to do. It's now been translated into 15 languages, and I am giving lectures around the world often about the topics that I discuss. But one of the things that I always hear from readers is a very hefty suspicion of utopianism or of ideas that are deemed to be utopian. And the word utopian is often used in a pejorative sense to mean unworkable, unthinkable, impossible. And that reaction, so people who actually want to believe that the world can get better, but the minute they actually start to think about, okay, well, what can we do? How can we change things? The minute those conversations start to devolve into 
anything that might be considered outside of the mainstream or a little bit more radical than a good sort of solid middle of the road labor or social democratic type policy, people freak out because of the negative association of utopianism that they associate with the word utopian. And so this book in some ways is picking up the mantle that I kind of left off with the last book and saying, okay, so outside of state socialism in Eastern Europe, as it was practiced in the 20th century, what are some of the other communities historically and in different cultural contexts that have really pushed the boundaries of our social imagination? Um, The book talks about utopian, for want of a better word, societies that are trying to improve very specific areas of life, housing, families, schooling, and and we'll talk about those as we go. But in a more general term, let's talk about, again, where the original idea of a utopia comes from. Well, you know, okay, so it's so fascinating when you think about the term utopia. I mean, it gets coined by Sir Thomas More in 1516, when he writes this little book called Utopia. And He's playing on an interesting ambiguity in the ancient Greek, right? So utopia can mean either a no place, but if you spell it with the EU, it can mean a good place. And so there's something about this concept of, you know, suddenly meeting other people or people who are living in a different way. In this case, a man named Raphael Hithlode travels to the island of Utopia, where he meets the utopians who have this completely different way of living. And Moore uses this as a way to kind of comment on the realities of of Henry VIII's England at the time. But utopianism as a concept goes all the way back, I think, to early monastic communities in the subcontinent with the early Cenobitic monastics, followers of the Buddha, but also people like, I mean, even further, if we think about people like Pythagoras was very much a utopian. The Pythagoreans had a commune in what is now Southern Italy, where they lived together and held their property in common and practiced gender equality and really formed their private lives in such a way that they could promote human flourishing in order to better understand the mysteries of mathematics and the universe. And so I think almost everywhere you look, again, trans-historically and cross-culturally, you will always find a very small percentage of the population, I like to think of them as the other 1%. We talk about the 1% of the economic elite, but there's also this other 1%, which is always out there living their lives in a way that is very, very unfamiliar to the majority of the population in the time in which they're living. So I think utopia as a word goes back in some ways to Sir Thomas More in 1516, but utopianism as a concept I argue, is really as old as humanity itself. There have always been social dreamers, and those social dreamers are the ones primarily responsible in many ways for moving our societies forward. And when we look at historical examples, is there, I guess in very general terms, what is it that makes people question the status quo and think about alternative ways of living is there often like conditions going on in society and I'm, I'm saying that really thinking about why why now why is now also a good time to be thinking about this yes that's a great question so you know in the introduction of this book I really talk about great moments of upheaval 
And if you think about Sir Thomas More in 1516, he's writing Utopia in response to the voyages of Columbus and Vespucci and the sort of kind of cognitive and spiritual and political upheaval of the discoveries, quote unquote, of America, right, of these continents to the far west. Also, if you look at somebody like Tommaso Campanella, who wrote The City of the Sun, The City of the Sun was very much in some ways a response to the earth-shaking reality of heliocentrism or the, you know, the proposal of heliocentrism. There were all sorts of moments, I think, in history. Uh, Plato's Republic was written in the aftermath of the Peloponnesian Wars, which Thucydides called the greatest war of all, right? So there are these incredible moments when the world in which we live suddenly seems to be shaken fundamentally to its core. And I really believe that this moment that we're in right now in 2023 is one of those moments because of the pandemic because of the threat of the climate crisis, because of many geopolitical things that are happening in our world today that are forcing people to kind of reevaluate whether the status quo, whether the way we have been living is the way that we should be living in order to meet the challenges of the 21st century in a way that promotes human thriving and human flourishing, as well as, you know, dealing with these sort of more complicated and ever-increasing challenges that we're facing. And so I think that there's this rupture that the pandemic provided, and that is allowing some of these utopian ideas to reemerge in little bits and pieces on the margins of our societies, as they always do. But those are really important things to be paying attention to, because they're often where new ideas, new ways of living, new ways of conceiving of the world, they emerge from these liminal spaces on the margins. And before we go on to look at some of the examples that you talk about in the book, there's a, a couple of other things that we need to we need to discuss. And I guess we think now in the West that, you know, one of the things that was an impediment to a more utopian living is capitalism. But going back even further than that, always there has been some form of patriarchy. And you you split that down into a couple of more categories, patrilineality and patrilocality, um, which are two terms that I've not heard before. So tell us, first of all, what you mean by these. Right. So many people want to, you know, hashtag smash the patriarchy. But what they don't understand is that patriarchy relies on these two other fundamental practices that underpin it. The first, patrilocality, is the idea that when you know, people get married, the bride leaves her family and moves into the family, the location of the family of her husband. Patrilocality is very important because it is what sort of creates the idea that a woman is sort of transferred from her father, the property of her father, into being ultimately the property of her husband, and that her children will be the children of the husband, the father's line. And that's the second concept is patrilineality is the practice that allows for the intergenerational transfer of wealth from a father to his legitimate sons. Wealth and privilege, it doesn't necessarily have to be material wealth, but it's it's often associated with titles and things like that. And so, you know, it's the reason why women generally tend to take their husband's name. It's why the children of a family take the father's name. 
we have these twin practices of patrilocality and patrilineality, which underpin patriarchy. And if you want to disrupt the continuance of patriarchy, right, because capitalism in some ways relies on the family to facilitate this intergenerational transfer of wealth and privilege through the family, right? That's what capitalism creates wealth, but the intergenerational transfer of that wealth is done through the family unit. And so my argument in the book is that if you really want to understand what's happening in our world and why our lives are organized the way they are, you have to definitely look at capitalism, but you also have to look at the way that capitalism is intermixed and intricately bound up with these familial practices of patriarchy. And that if you resist patriarchy, in some ways, if you can disrupt these underlying patterns of patrilocality and patrilineality, you can ultimately actually start to disrupt the workings of capitalism as well. And so it's a very, it's an old argument that has, again, it goes back to Pythagoras, it goes back to Plato, it goes back to many different religious traditions of Cenobitic monasticism, but it's all about living our private lives in a way that disrupts this intergenerational transfer of wealth and privilege. Let's take a look, first of all, then, at some alternative ways of housing. Generally, we're talking about communal living types of ways of living here. And there's some, you know, great modern ideas in here. But of course, nothing really is uh, new under the sun. So first of all, let's talk about Çatalhöyük in Turkey, in, well, in modern Turkey. Yeah. So um, this is a, a, a Neolithic uh, settlement. It was continuously inhabited for thousands of years. And it's a fascinating place. Because it, you know, again, architecturally, it looks sort of like one big massive family home. And there were no streets and no plazas between uh, people's individual dwellings. Everybody entered in and out of these dwellings through holes in the roof. There were ladders going down. And the roof of this massive dwelling was basically kind of like this big, huge communal area, we suppose, where people socialized and, and lived most of their lives. So the thing that's really fascinating about Totohoyuk is that when archaeologists discovered that the inhabitants of these dwellings buried the bones in the base of their hearths, there was an assumption that once they excavated these bones from you know similar eras, because of course this settlement had existed for a long time, but looking at the bones that were interned at the same time, that they would be blood-related, that they would be consanguineous kin. And what really surprised the archaeologists was that they found that the people in Chattahoyuk who shared these individual dwellings were primarily not blood-related. They were non-consanguineous. So they had a very, very different concept of kinship than we do today, which is absolutely fascinating when you think about the idea that we have and we've perpetuated for really centuries now, even millennia, you could argue, that the single family home is the appropriate container for the consanguineous family. And that there might have been other ways of being in the world and living in the world, which allowed us to live in a group of people that were not necessarily our blood related kin. 
Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Kristen Godsey, and we're talking about her book, Everyday Utopia, in praise of radical alternatives to the traditional family home. And Kristen, in the second half then, staying on housing for a minute, and I want to look at a, um, a couple of French examples. So first of all, tell us something about the utopian socialist Charles Fourier and his idea for communal living. Yeah. So, you know, I think every single one of these different experiments really tried to find a balance between privacy and community. And it's a it's a balance that many of us are still trying to strike to this day. But the Fourierists in France were really some of the most revolutionary in terms of their utopian vision for these what they called phalanxes or phalansteries, which were these sort of large, basically kind of like hotels, often in rural areas. They were meant to house precisely 1,620 people who would be chosen theoretically on Fourier's theory of passionate attraction, which we don't have time to go into. 
But the idea was that you could build a very harmonious society out in the countryside. It would have some rural industries as well as agriculture. It would function on the principles of self-labor so that everybody would be working at whatever it is that they wanted to be working at. And people would share their resources and share their time together in this community. It would be very, very, you know, this sort of idealistic, bucolic existence. And this was an extremely influential vision. Uh, There were many phalanxes, followers of Fourier, who came to the United States and who built these phalansteries in places like New Jersey, in Wisconsin. There are a couple of them still, you know, they're long defunct, but the we have the historical memory of these communities. It was an attempt to really reimagine what the architecture of our daily dwelling experience would look like in order to shape a certain kind of sociality, a kind of communal relations. And Fourier was really kind of one of those utopian dreamers who really pushed the boundaries of what people thought were possible was possible at the time. And there's another place in France called the Social Palace. Guise, What's about that yeah. place? Guise, yeah. yeah. So uh, in Guise, Godin, André Godin, was a follower of Fourier. He was also an industrialist who had invented a sort of patented enameled stove. And because he was a follower of Fourier, he invested almost all of his profits in this community which was attached to his foundry, to his factory. It was called the Familisteri. It was sort of a play on the phalanstery. And all of his workers, as well as Godin himself and his wife and his family, they all lived together in basically a huge hotel with this amazingly vaulted glass, beautiful vaulted glass ceiling. And that community existed for over a hundred years. And Towards the end of his life, Godin uh, transferred all of the property to the workers, and it really functioned as a worker-owned cooperative. And it was a very, very successful experiment in communal living. And in fact, to this day, if you go to the little museum that is attached to the social palace, you can buy a little mug, and it says, a utopia realized. So it's one of those examples of a Fourierist community that really succeeded and managed to thrive for quite a long time that we rarely hear about. You talk in the book about the um, the communal benefits of raising children together in a sort of like allo-parenting way. And I was pleased that um, in this chapter, just as an aside, we get to meet one of the great heroes from the previous book, who is uh, Alexandra Kollontai. Um, but tell us something about the, um, yeah, the sort of benefits of raising children on a wider level than the, than the nuclear family. Absolutely. So I think anybody who had small children during the pandemic (laughs) will understand that having lots of other loving, caring adults around in your community is going to be not only good for the parents, but extremely good for the kids. You know, we now have all of this child psychological evidence, which is emerging, showing that young children who were born either just before the lockdowns or during the lockdowns and didn't really see anybody but their parents are developmentally delayed in various ways because they just haven't had the kinds of interactions with other adults, other loving adults, and other people in general. So I spend a lot of time in the book talking about the evolutionary biology and psychology of what is called cooperative breeding and the ways in which all of the empirical evidence very clearly shows that raising our children in wider networks of love and care is good both for the parents and for the children. 
And I give lots of different examples in the book of both religious and secular communities that have experimented with a wide variety of collective child rearing. Now, there are extremes. Some of those, like the Israeli kibbutz experiments, the early experiments where they had collective sleeping did not work out so well. But there were lots of other experiments that were extremely successful and continue to be successful to this day. So the key point is that these two things are related. If you're living in a larger communal space, even if you have your own individual family unit, as many co-housing communities have in Denmark today, or as the families living in the social palace in Gies had, as long as you're in a community with many, many other adults, this is actually just going to facilitate the kind of alloparenting that I talk about in the book. It just comes natural when you have kids and your neighbors and your colleagues have kids, maybe your aunts and your, your sisters or your cousins have kids, that those kids are going to form a community and you're all going to sort of become alloparents to each other's children. This is a very natural thing for humans to do. You also talk about older children in terms of education. And of course, as everybody would know, education is already something that we um, give out to somebody else to take part. Children are sent off to school to be, a, to be taught. So tell us some ways in which this could be improved. Yeah, so I give a lot of concrete ideas in the book that come from many of these earlier utopian thinkers. And I think, you know, education is not only about what we think of as traditional school, like until you're 16 or 18 years old, but it's also a lifelong commitment to education. And, you know, Thomas More really talks about how we should have free access to sort of lectures and the ability to learn things and read for our entire lives. And that the utopians, they spend all of their spare time that they're not using when they're working, they read. And you don't have to read, but they sometimes they go to lectures in the morning. They sometimes, you know, have discussions. It's a very educated community, which I think is a really interesting kind of vision for what a utopian society would look like. Tommaso Campanella talks about the entire architecture of the city would be these concentric circles of walls and painted on the walls would be all of the collected knowledge of mankind, of humanity. So a sort of medieval Wikipedia is what I call it in the book, the idea of democratizing knowledge, which by the way, would have been absolutely horrifying to the Catholic church at that particular period of history, which is one of the reasons why Campanella spent so many years of his life in prison because of the uh, Inquisition. But even more to the current day, I think that one of the problems certainly we have in the United States, one of the problems that I think you're having increasingly in the UK is the commodification of education. The idea of treating education as something that you consume in order to build your personal brand or increase your human capital so that you can sell your labor on a market at a higher price. You know, all of these earlier utopian visions for education were really about expanding our ability to find our place in the world, to find meaning in the world, to find purpose. It wasn't about trying to increase our capital so that we can, you know, get a, a better job with a higher wage. And so I think there's a really interesting mismatch in the way in which education today is seen as something that you buy and that it's yours and that you deploy in your life in a strategic way in order to improve your individual circumstances versus education is something that the entire society and community benefits from, you know, as a part of a thriving, healthy, flourishing human community. So let's talk about how the 
the nuclear family developed to be the standard model in the West? I dedicate two chapters to this topic in the book because I believe that it's a very important topic. And it's the one part of utopian ideology, really going all the way back to Pythagoras and Plato, as well as to some of these Cenobitic monastic communities that I discuss, that people are the most reticent to grapple with. Because I think family, for many people, is the refuge from the market. And I'm fully on board with that. I understand that the last thing that we want to do is to disrupt the sort of social institution in society where we do have access to unconditional love and non-transactional relationships. That being said, I spend a lot of time talking about the long and deep history of the particular form of the nuclear family, the biparental model of care for biological children, which is housed usually in a single family home, a space that isolates that family from other families, and how that model really is predicated on a society with extreme levels of inequality, where you have to create this mechanism, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, for the intergenerational transfer of wealth and privilege. And so, you know, there's this sort of, um, there's the history of what we call monogamy, there's the history of the nuclear family, there's also the evolutionary biology and the evolutionary psychology of the nuclear family and of monogamy. There's also a long kind of exegetical scriptural tradition about whether or not you should be married. And if, you know, different traditions have very different views around monogamy or polygamy, but also the practice of celibacy, which I believe is a very important utopian practice. You know, if you go back and you look at the, for instance, the rule of St. Benedict from 530 AD, you're going to see that in the construction of monastic communities for both men and women, St. Benedict of Nursia was really kind of trafficking in a sort of utopian way of thinking, except for that rather than secular human flourishing, he was creating communities to better serve God. So it's hard to, you know, give the soundbite in the entire, for all of these different things, these deeper histories of monogamy. But the key point that I make in the book is that if we look at the anthropological literature and we look out across human societies at different historical moments and across cultures, what we find is that the human family is incredibly flexible. It has changed and adapted to different climactic, geographic, economic, political uh, circumstances over time. You know, it's often resource-driven as well. And so what I want to point out is that our mating practices, so whether we are pair bonding, whether we are asexual or celibate, whether we're in polyandrous or polygynous relationships, whether we are in group marriages, all of those things are separable from our child-rearing practices. And that even though mating practices vary, it turns out that human beings have a proclivity for pair bonding, but that even with primary pair bonding, it has generally been the case that we have tended to be cooperative breeders. And the sort of monogamous nuclear family that is very hegemonic today is, I think, very much an aberration for human societies across time and across cultures. And I think that's a really important thing to realize because many of us 
are very isolated in these nuclear families. And I think that was especially felt profoundly during the pandemic when people were kind of stuck in their little single family homes with, you know, their immediate biological kin and losing these wider networks of support and love and care that are so necessary for human thriving. And just one more thing then, and maybe on a, on a lighter note, as you mentioned, all the way through the book, there are historical examples of so-called utopian societies, different ways of living, some that work, some that don't, what we could learn from them. But there is a another thing that hangs heavily over a lot of this book, and that is Star Trek. So tell us why. <laughs> yes. So... Star Trek is a really important part of what's happening here. Part of this is is a very practical reality that I wrote this book during the pandemic. And in, you know, in order to get me through the pandemic, I did a massive Star Trek rewatch, as well as, you know, watching the newer shows that continue to appear. And so I think there was a way in which I was thinking about all of these different historical utopian communities, really doing a deep dive into biological anthropology, history, theology, all sorts of different fields in order to understand what is it about this persistence over time of these social dreamers, these utopians, these sort of radically militantly hopeful people who are saying, we're just going to get on with living our lives in a completely different way from everybody else because we think that this is going to work better. And it occurred to me that as I was reading all of these different texts, that that was also a message that was absolutely infused throughout Star Trek. Star Trek is one of the most hopeful, optimistic, sort of future positive things that I think that you can watch on television or you know streaming these days today. But it's been around since 1966. It's got a long history. And if you've ever been to a Star Trek convention or you've ever been in a space with uh, Star Trek fans, the thing that will strike you immediately is the intergenerational aspect and the cross-cultural and diverse aspect of Star Trek fans. It is truly one of the most inclusive and diverse communities in terms of a fandom that you could imagine. And I think that part of what continues to attract people to this show over time, it's been a long, many decades now, is what Ernst Bloch calls the militant hope or the radical optimism of its message. And that's a message that I think utopians have always understood that rather than preaching their particular way of being in the world, many of these utopian societies, many of these utopian communities, they just live in the world. They live their politics in a prefigurative way. They just instantiate in the world the absence of certain negative things that they don't want to exist in the same way that the original Star Trek just decided in 1966 at a time of great racism and sexism and the Cold War, that they were going to create the bridge of the enterprise with black, white, Russian, American men, women, all standing side by side in the future. And I think that's a really important message of hope and of joy and of optimism that a lot of people are lacking right now because of the rather dire state of the world that we are living in right now. So I've been talking to Kristen Godsey. We've been talking about her book, Everyday Utopia, in praise of radical alternatives to the traditional family home, which is out now in the UK from Bodley Head. Kristen, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me about it. Thank you so much for having me back. It's always such a pleasure to talk to you. 
This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.